Welcome, everybody, to the uh, Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, uh, David Dylan Thomas. Um, I'm going to start off, we've been starting these off now with uh, land acknowledgments. So I'm going to let you know that, hey, I am here in Media, Pennsylvania, but not that long ago, uh, this was uh, inhabited by the Lenat people. This is unceded land from the Lenat people. Uh, Jeff, I don't know if you want to get in on this. Yeah. Um, I, so it's I, I'm I'm from uh, the Chicago suburbs, and the Great Lakes was sort of a popular area. It's it's um, land that uh, originally was uh, belonged to the Potawatomi Nation, uh, the Kickapoo, uh, the Peoria tribe, the Miami Nation. A lot of different a lot of different groups were uh, have have deep history here, and uh, you can you can see that even in like the names of local you know local towns, parks, stuff like that, and. Uh, Learning more about that has been really interesting after having grown up around the names and not really having any conception of what they meant. Well, something like over 50% of state names descend from Native American names. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like right there on the face of it, but we never really talk about it. Um, I dropped in the chat just a link if you want to find out, like, who was there first, where you are. Um, uh, if you want to investigate that, and feel free to put your own um, declarations in the uh, the chat there as you're saying hi. So, uh, with that in mind, uh, speaking of names, uh, Jeff, <laughs> who are you? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What brings you here today? Um, I'm Jeff Eaton. I'm a content management, content architecture, digital strategy guy. Um, I've been doing web stuff and digital publishing stuff for probably about 25 years, give or take. Um, and uh, probably for the past, you know, decade plus, um, I've been really heavily involved in like um, the content strategy and architecture and planning side of like CMS and web technology. So I tend to like live at like intersections between different disciplines. Um, and I have that like autodidactic curse where I'll get really fascinated by a particular discipline and like do a deep dive for like a couple of months and know enough to talk to people who actually know about those things. Um, and so I, I, I try to like, you know, I, I try to post a little disclaimer that I'm, I'm kind of a magpie, you know, I, you know I, 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 I spot lots of shiny things in lots of different disciplines and I pick them up and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to add asterisks and caveats uh, when I'm talking about something that I just find fascinating versus something I actually have real knowledge about. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you about that. Cause like I, I have done that for cognitive bias for like three, four years now. Right. Um, and I'm kind of a cognitive bias magpie. I'm like, Ooh, you know, uh, act, uh um, availability heuristic, let's go. Um, but, uh, but like I will have occasion to be in a space with folks who have literally studied this and paid very good money to study this for a very long time and have like, you know, PhD in their name. Do you ever get like imposter syndrome when you kind of encounter folks who are like, quote unquote, like professional, whatever thing you're magpieing over right now? I, I mean, I think that that's always, uh, you know, there's a tendency towards that. Um, I mean, you know, my, my background is I was actually, so I was actually homeschooled uh, through like most middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. um, and I spent a lot of my early career years with sort of this internalized sense that I never really interrogated very much that like, I was sort of just, you know, I was sort of faking it. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, and it, especially because you know you you think of you think of those other people as ones who did the official thing yeah 
And I don't know if that, like, I don't know if that particular distinction makes sense to everybody, but like, it, it was really deeply internalized for me. And um, it, it took a long time to realize that, like, you know, there were, there were formative experiences I had, there are different paths to certain kinds of understanding, but A, it doesn't make it any less legitimate. Mm-hmm. And B, you can do, you can decide how you're going to react to that internal feeling of like faking it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like, you know, the, the situation you described of like suddenly finding myself in the room, you know, with a bunch of, you know, actual experts on a given topic, um, you know, you, it, it, it can be a conscious decision to say, oh, I can learn a lot here. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's enthusiastic about this and mm-hmm. I can enjoy the fact that I've got enough of a like shared language that I feel like I can have a conversation with them about it, but trying to make sure that I don't have, I don't have to come across as an expert. I don't have to convince yeah. everyone that I am the smartest guy in the room just because I'm enthusiastic about something and I really care about it. Does yeah, that make I, sense? No, it totally does. And I, I think it's like that curiosity is like a nice cure to the imposter syndrome. Cause then it, the imposter syndrome defines or is dependent upon self-consciousness, right? Yeah. It's dependent upon some fear of the reaction of others to your presence, right? And how and, you're presenting and if, yourself. And if like, if I work to build more of my sense of self that I bring into these places around that curiosity, I'm, I'm not pretending, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm not actually curious <laughs> and I'm yeah. just pretending to be curious. But yeah, you know, it, it's like, I think that's that's helped and it's taken a lot of work to sort of, get to a point of recognizing that I'm bringing curiosity, not necessarily being the smartest person on all these topics. Yeah. I like, I forget who said it, but it's like, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I, uh, so, so Jeff, what have you been thinking about lately? Um, well, I, I joke that I've usually got like three or four very divergent threads going on. Um, uh, probably the big themes for me over the past like year or so are um, in digital projects and content strategy and design in particular, like the importance of systems thinking in like how they connect to each other and how they interact and how they play out over the lifespan of, you know, an organization or a large project. Um, also, um game mechanics, you know, in my spare hobby time, you know, I, I tend to do, you know, tabletop gaming and uh, actually one of the people who uh, is attending here, Elaine Nelson, is my GM for a running uh, D&D campaign. Um, and uh, thanks for not killing us on Tuesday. Um, and I think a, a third thread that uh, I've been chewing on is uh the like the the makeup and uh social impact of uh the christian right as like Mm. uh, as a sort of a cultural force in the united states um because i grew up you know in like you know religious and politically uh, you know on the right and it was a part of you know like the the water i was in you know the water i swam in uh for a long time and starting to the well I think we're going to talk about it a little bit, you know, how, how we start thinking about the concept of cognitive biases and stuff like that for me is also tied up in the, you know, my own personal narrative of how I started bringing more self-examination and, you know, 
deconstruction to the way I looked at the world. Um, and I think so it, it's a lot of these different themes have crossover points for me, you know, it, it's, yeah, I, I, my Twitter feed is kind of a, of a topical uh, hash, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, I, um, I, I definitely want to dig into the kind of evangelical history because I have that too. I totally grew up in a very, you know, like born again, like Do all of shift your to the right. Reflexively have three bullet points. <laughs> <laughs> so, but before we go there, I have a very critical question. Mm -hmm. What does a GM do in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign? <laughs> uh, so they're basically, so depends on who you talk to, okay. but they're basically the one who has the uh, like the God's eye view of what's going on, what the story that's playing out is, even though players may have a restricted view of like the information they've learned or where they're at. Sure. The GM is sort of like, um, almost like the director of a play in which uh, <laughs> the actors get to decide which scene they're gonna go to before, uh, <laughs> before something now, happens. Is that different from a DM? Uh, same thing. Yeah, oh, I, I, okay. I thought sorry. there's like this whole other role I didn't oh, know no, about. No. Yeah, the dungeon master, <laughs> game master. The thing oh, is, is like that okay. person who's like the yeah, yeah, organizer yeah. and the master of ceremonies. Lots of different games have different terms for it. And right, that, right. Know, it's that, it's oh, that's that sort awesome. of wrangler role. And, you know, they get to say things like, and that was a really bad idea. You're going to have to roll for initiative now. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, uh, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't know this about you. And I, I, I run into, there's not a lot of people I know who have that evangelical past, but are currently in a far more liberal intellectual space. So I'm curious about your journey with that and like the lingering effects of, or how you think about the influences of having that kind of history. Well, um, so I've actually just started up another podcast about it called oh, wow. Christian Rightcast, um, okay. in which uh, journalist Christian Rawls and I uh, basically work on sort of deconstructing and mapping like the different groups and ideologies and history of that movement. But so I, I'm, I'm not going to hoover up a lot of time, sure. <laughs> like the big picture, but like my experience with it, I would say that like, trying to learn about and master the, the idea of rhetorical fallacies in mm. like argumentation and um, apologetics. Mm. For me, when I was like really on fire and, you know, I wanted to go out and, you know, argue with the universe, you know, I'm going to fight the moon. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that kind of impulse was strong and, figuring out how to unpack and deconstruct arguments and find flaws in arguments was like a big thing that I was jazzed about, you know, and this is also, you know, I was a fighty teenager with fresh access to Usenet. So like, you know, that, <laughs> that, that gives you a good picture of yeah. what the, what the reinforcing factors were. Um, but over time, I think if you're honest about trying to unpack rhetoric and make effective arguments very quickly you start wandering into the realm of cognitive bias because mm -hmm. a lot of rhetorical fallacies things like appealing to authority rather than you know 
rather than making an argument that stands on its own. You know, those kinds of things at their core, the reason they're either commonly made rhetorical fallacies or very effective rhetorical fallacies when you're trying to convince someone um, is because they connect to underlying cognitive biases that we all yeah. have as people. And well, that was just the universal solvent that started, you know, dissolving a whole bunch of things I was extremely <laughs> certain about in, 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 in how I looked at the world. Because once you start looking at cognitive biases, not just as something that other people have, right, that, that makes them not right. Somehow, <laughs> once you start looking at how you are seeing things and how you're starting to examine things and, you know, and make sense out of what's going on around you, you say, oh, well, I too have these biases and I think I'm right. It's not that I think I'm incorrect. But I can also step back and recognize, you know, how I have made these particular errors and even felt like the tug of the appeal of certain ideas or arguments when yeah. your head's saying, well, that's not necessarily right, but it feels right. Yeah. It feels right to say X or Y or Z and recognizing that that's usually a cognitive bias as it work. Like that was, I think like that was a real tipping point for me in starting to examine my own perspectives on things mm -hmm. and try to figure out how to, how to engage in the world honestly and, you know, and still have values and beliefs and, you know, a, a moral perspective on the world, but still acknowledge that, you know, inherent human fallibility that comes with, you know, being a, a computer made of meat. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, right? Because I think that 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 values piece. I was talking to somebody. Uh, I was at UX Copenhagen and talking to a bunch of folks there. Obviously, a lot of folks were there from just different Scandinavian countries. I think Sweden in particular. I was talking to this one guy who had just given me the given me the most horrifying presentation on uh, robots and like sex robots. And sort of like all the moral implications of tech that are wound up in that, and it's—I I won't go into it here, but it's just—it's—it's it's far more horrible than you think, and you probably already think it's pretty horrible. I've been on but, the internet for a long time. Yeah. I can, okay. I can think of yeah, a lot of horrible yeah. things. So. But but he was approaching it from this very moral place. He was talking how, about how there was um, basically they're trying to give robots rights, like to a certain degree. This is how sci-fi starts. Yeah, and 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 the the reason. They wanted to give robots a certain degree of rights is because they knew anything you did to a robot wasn't going to stop with robots. They were actually looking out for people and they were just yeah. getting ahead of it. <laughs> right. And huh. so like that piece, but, but all, all of us should say there was a very keen sense of morals, but it's also a super um, atheistic uh, society. Like it's not, it's like not a so big on religion conception of like exactly. how you build a moral and ethical framework. Yeah. And that that's the part that I'm really curious about, because on the one hand, I grew up in that culture that abhorred the notion of taking God out of schools and kept talking about how, oh, schooling went down the drain as soon as they took God out of schools. And now I'm that guy who cringes a little bit when my son is watching the Pledge of Allegiance and they get to the under God part. It's like, OK, added I by in Eisenhower. God, but. I don't know that we need to be forcing that on people, you know, like, and tying it to the country so much, uh, right? But, but, but I, at the same time, I'm like, okay, I agree, take, take God out of schools, but it feels like we also took morals out of schools 
And I'm like, I, I, it's a very twitchy thing to sort of say, it is clear from waves hand at everything, morals and values are kind of important. <laughs> and if you act without them, you get waves hand at world in general. At the same time though, it becomes this very touchy, cringy thing to talk about, well, shouldn't we be teaching that in school? It, so, and this comes from the, this comes from the incredibly cringe generating like early twenties zone in my life. You know, I, I, mm -hmm. I think a, any white guy who can look at his early twenties and not cringe <laughs> is either a saint or delusional. That is my <laughs> personal theory. Um, but uh, I, I really, really got into the book. Uh, Purity of heart is to will one thing uh, by Kierkegaard. Um, the and the idea like for him it was this giant critique of like the you know the corruption of the you know the church at the time mm -hmm. but what he talked about was that um our stated values are often not our true values mm -hmm. and that everyone has values and that it isn't some sort of mystical category it's the things we value the things that we choose consistently and we can look at the decisions that we make and the choices we keep making and from those things we can see what are our values and you know the 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 indulgent egocentric nature of like a 20 something guy like carrying around a Kierkegaard book and saying yes this is what I'm reading right now is a whole other thing but like that core idea of values aren't just an aspirational statement, like a company's mission statement or something like that. They're a description of the things that we keep choosing when we have to choose between mm -hmm. things, I think is really helpful for me in articulating and understanding it because it also, it, it can also feed into that self-examination loop that we were talking about. If I look at the things that I keep choosing and I don't like that, I say, well, you know, I don't want these to be my values. That's that's an important process of like growth and setting mm -hmm. goals and stuff like that. And it can help be it can help you become aware of what you want to work on and what you want to change. So like I don't necessarily think of values in that sense as like purely aspirational, here are our goals. But it's sort of a feedback loop between like the the desired values and the practiced values and stuff like that. Um, I think what, like the the civic religion aspect of it that you were getting at the idea that you know something was taken out of our culture when the direct inherent religiosity was sort of you know when we attempted to remove that. I think that's important because like on the. Christian Rightcast podcast, one of the things that we've been talking about is the particular doctrinal thread running through a lot of um, American Protestantism that um, it's impossible for someone to have a moral framework without the underlying, you know, yeah. theology yeah. of, you know, God's, you know, divine sovereignty and stuff like that. It's like the, basically this idea that that is the only actual basis on which you can make a moral and, and values framework. And obviously I disagree strongly. With that. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, but I, I think that looking, looking back at that, like purity of heart is to will one thing, you know, way of understanding what values even means is important because that, that gives like a reason why that's not a meaningful, you know, 
distinction to draw. It's like people still value things. People still make choices about what they will do or not do or prioritize or not prioritize, regardless of the faith group they're a part of or the religious tradition they're a part of or their relationship to this, you know, the, the idea of the supernatural or spiritual world. They still have values and we can still have meaningful conversations about what are our shared values and where mm -hmm. do our values differ without that, um, you know, w without that, um, I mean, dare I say, like authoritarian view that yeah. you have to be on this page or you are morally bankrupt, you know, it, it, I, and I think that that's been a useful thing for me to hang on to that I don't have to give up the idea of there being values and morals, but it does mean we have to be thoughtful about them and we have to discuss them and we can, you know, we have to engage in dialogue about what those values are in order for, in order to be able to work together as a cohesive, <laughs> as a cohesive team, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like that, that has been the challenge of America, right? Like one of the core tenets of like anti-racism is this notion of, I don't really care what you do to, you know, not be racist. <laughs> I care what you do to be anti-racist, right? It's a positive action, not a negative one. And that is about defining a gap between your stated values and your actual behavior, right? I say, you know, I, um, you know, believe that women belong in the workplace just as much as men. But and yet, when I'm evaluating a resume, even unconsciously, I'm devaluing and being more critical of the resumes that are coming in from women, right? And that's where bias comes in and recognizing there's an uh, implicit <clears throat> uh, part of that that's like, okay, you're like an alcoholic. I just got to keep you out of bars for a while until we can work on that pattern. But there's also an explicit part where you're like, voting in favor of policies that discriminate against women or mm -hmm. against black people, or you're sitting a little further away when you're interviewing a black person or whatever that is. Right. So I feel, but I feel like all of that, the approach to that conversation has been very Puritan. It has been like, we even use the word purity test when we're talking about canceling people, right? Like what's more Puritan than that? Yeah. Whereas, it's like, it's, like it's a, it's like, it's a process of seeking, atonement or seeking yeah. purity so that you can be in a position of like moral virtue rather than moral turpitude. I don't know. Well, it's, it's basically being bulletproof, right? It's like, tell me yeah. all the things I can do to never get yelled at again. <laughs> right? Like that's the, that's one attitude toward, toward anti-racism, which is really not anti-racism. It's just, please never call me a racist. Yeah. It's like, I would really like to not be yelled at. It's like, yes. well, that is, at a baseline, sometimes useful sure. in certain circumstances. <laughs> you know, people not wanting to be yelled at. It's how we're attempting to keep my cat from, <laughs> you know, ruining the carpet. But like... But, as, but think about that, right? That, that the best relationship you can hope for in that scenario is, okay, we're going to be each other's pets, right? Yeah. <laughs> like and, <that's>, and, <laughs> yeah. Versus, versus actively aiming for and saying... Here are your stated values. Here's how you're behaving. Let's make the project of the rest of your life be how do we get these things closer together and how do we embody, like that's, that's what my therapy has been all about. Instead of making my life about, am I a good or a bad person? Make it about, here are these values. Here are these things that you want to be true. 
how close at any given moment are you to them and how do you get closer? Like that to me is where the progress lays. That to me is where the interesting policy lays, right? And and I think that also is a really important, um, maybe not counter, but it's like the 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 whole and healthy version of what I think a lot of people who express deep opposition to or skepticism of or even concern about anti-racism as a movement. I, I hear lots of people talking about this idea that there's self-hatred or self-criticism or this sense of, you know, abnegation and, you know, oh, you just have to prostrate yourself, be, you know, before this philosophical ideal. Um, and that's what this is all about. And I think that's a real damaging misunderstanding of that, of that process that you described. Self-analysis and honesty with yourself about the fact that there's always going to be a gap between the ideals that we aspire to and what we're actually accomplishing and living out in the day-to-day that doesn't have to be about self-flagellation. It doesn't have to be about that. You know, I, I can, I can look and say, oh crap, I, I realized that, you know, this way I was approaching this has been harmful to people that were around me in ways that I didn't see. And that can be a sobering and shaking experience, but like, it's that desire to move towards something positive that can drive that. And I don't think that has to be about, you know, self-hatred or something like that. I think it's exactly the opposite of that. It's a desire to be who you want to be. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the things that, so one of the first conversations we had, we met at Confab, I believe. One of the first conversations we had was around metrics and goals. And I think that's when you introduced me to Goodhart's law, which uh, became kind of a, a key factor in my book. So tell me a little bit about Goodhart's law. Okay, so um, it's basically it's named after uh, the British economist Charles Goodhart, and uh, in the 1970s, like during a period of time when like the British government was trying to basically retool their economic metrics internally, um, he um, coined a phrase. The, the, the exact provenance of the wording is, you know, hotly disputed as with most good homilies. <laughs> um, but he says when a measure becomes a target it ceases to be a good measure. Like if you identify a thing that you think you're going to try to track to judge the healthiness of the system, as soon as people realize you're measuring that thing and start trying to move that thing, now its usefulness as a metric begins to be compromised. And the more attention people are putting on that one number, on that one line, the less useful it is as a measure of the broader thing that you are trying to assess. Like, um, I, you know, the easiest one to point to in the, in the web world is um, bounce rate. You know, mm. Google Analytics, when it rolled out, it, you know, it automatically tracks bounce rate, which is basically when somebody comes to the page, how long did they stay on the page versus just jumping out? Um, but then it became clear that like, well, there's all kinds of different reasons that that behavior could be occurring. And sometimes somebody coming to your page and leaving in five seconds is success. It means they came for information, they got it and they left. Congratulations, you did an awesome job, but your bounce rate is bad. So like, 
should you start trying to get them to stay longer? Like what, you know, what do you do? And it's that idea that the, the number you're tracking is very rarely the thing you really care about, the thing that is actual success. Most metrics are just sort of adjacent to success. <laughs> and Goodhart's <laughs> law is basically this idea that once people realize the thing that's being tracked can be gained independent of the broader success of the system, it's no longer a useful measure. It may still be correlated, but like there's inevitably going to be a drift away from the useful correlation that you used to be, that you started measuring because of. Yeah. And I feel like that, that what, what it exploits is this notion that we rarely have a good idea of what anything measurable has to do with the intention, right. Of the thing that's being measured. Right. So I think of, um, I was working on an intranet for a company once and there was like all this content that they were trying to get people to read coming from all these different departments. And it was like, if all of the content actually got read, that person would never get any work done because remember it's an intranet. They're there only because they're at work. And I could never get a straight answer around how much time do you actually want them spending on the intranet? versus actually getting work done, right? It's like, it, are you employing <laughs> professional intranet readers? Yeah, right? <laughs> but there, I mean, there's a little bit of deformation on professional too, because the people whose job it was to create content for the intranet, to them, that right. was the whole world. The, their measure of success is, are people reading our content? Yeah. How useful is it? There, so this is actually something that I've used as like a useful kind of heuristic when breaking down different kinds of content strategy projects. Um, I, I, I'm trying to remember the labels I've used for them in the past, but like there's technical, like the technical communications community tends to specialize on things like documentation, support, um, technical information about a thing that people engage with and the measure of success is usually like can people come get what they want and leave with a minimum of expensive time-consuming interaction um, and then there's like editorial publishing entertainment media type stuff where ongoing engagement usually in order to drive ad revenue or you know monetize via you know consumption of content, that's the big measure of success. Can they, can we get somebody to read a next article to make sure they come back tomorrow or next week or whatever? Um, and then there's marketing oriented projects where the measure of success is ultimately, no matter how much engagement you generate or whatever, the ultimate measure of success is, do they eventually become a customer or start a relationship with us. And the distinctions between those things can be muddied based on like how the project is, you know, you know, how a particular project plays out. But ultimately the biggest distinction is like, what are the real actual important drivers of success? And I, I'm always struck by how the metrics that are often easiest to use very rarely connect well to the underlying like real measure of success for a lot of those different projects. Like the number of technical, you know, underlying technical support websites that are trying to use bounce rate and, you know, time, time on page and engagement style me measures when really like 
organizationally, how much money do we have to spend in person hours to get someone's question answered is the real, is the real metric that matters. And that's trickier to measure. It's not, it doesn't come automatically wired into Google Analytics. <laughs> Yeah, and, and there's a there's an availability heuristic is another one of the key biases that come into play. So availability heuristic is the easier something is to basically access, whether it's in your brain or on your desktop, the more or important default measure in your analytics software. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the the more important it seems, right? And this affects things like you know uh, risk evaluation, you know, to like oh I'm afraid to fly in a plane because I can easily remember the last plane crash. I can't as easily remember the statistics around how many planes actually land safely, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think somebody else's, it's been referred to occasionally as like the, the Nancy Grace effect. Like Nancy Grace's show had like a constant wall-to-wall -wall coverage of like um, upper middle class white ladies getting abducted in like Central American resorts for like <laughs> five years. And it like... It gave a lot of America a very disproportionate view yeah. of like how, you know, what scale that problem was in like our society. Yeah. And and it's, and, it, and, and you can see like going back to our conversation of rhetoric, like that's how rhetoric works, especially rhetoric of fear, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say in public that Mexicans are rapists and that's going to sort of drive immigration policy for the next four years. Yeah, and, and, make, then, and, and repeating it and making yeah. sure that stories about, you know, like vivid stories, something that easily have statistical significance, when in fact, it may just be that they're very memorable and vivid, mm -hmm. but they aren't actually a picture of what's going on broadly. Yeah. Oh, no, no, that's the, and that, that, that's kind of the thing. Right. And, and bringing it back to sort of like, you know, values and metrics. Right. So I, I proposed Dave's law, which was the, that basically there's an inverse relationship between the value of a metric and how easy it is to measure. <laughs> Curious to get your take on that uh, approach. I, I was thinking about that hard and, you know, be, I, I'm, I'm a pedant by nature. So like, I had to like very carefully pick this apart. I'm like, well, what are we really saying when we use Dave's law? Um, and I, so like, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly, but it also means that we have to be careful and recognize that value and accuracy are mm. two different things. Yeah. The, yeah. like the ease of accessing a particular measurement does not mean that the measurement is inaccurate, but its value to us as a measure yeah. is often distorted. Like it may still be a very accurate little graph of bounce rate or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, but like the ease of accessing it, part of the value of something is what we get out of it. And the danger of those easy to access metrics is they, they tend to loom larger than they merit because they're easy, you know, because of the yeah. availability heuristic. And that's part of what we have to bake into our understanding of how valuable something is to us. Like if I can get to this really easy, I have to, I have to price in the danger of it, you know, of it, of it crowding out other more significant, perhaps more closely correlated measures that are a better fit for what I'm actually caring about long term, yeah. 
but they're harder to spot because this easy metric is right up in my face. Um, if, I don't know if you've ever watched, I, I don't know who's watched Frasier, the TV show. Mm -hmm. I love, my wife and I love Frasier. <laughs> uh, but um, there's an episode where he learns to ride a bike because he's never ridden a bike before. And it like, over and over through the episode, he just cannot not steer into this tree outside of his, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, outside of his apartment, because every time he tries to ride his bike by, he just looks at it and he can't stop looking at this tree and he just steers into this tree and this slow motion thunk and he falls over. And that's what those easy to measure metrics feel like to me. Yeah. They're the tree yeah. we can't take our <laughs> eyes off of no matter how much we think, Oh, I'm riding down the path. <laughs> So all, all of this makes me think that we've been thinking about efficiency all wrong because part of, part of the reason I sympathize with wanting very countable things – in fact, I'll never forget my EVP once said like we were in an estimating session and we were trying to estimate something brand new. right? In fact, one of our first conversations was how do you estimate a content modeling project and it's so hard. And he was saying when I'm estimating, what I really need are countable things. And it's like, oh, Right. <laughs> and some things are very countable. And when they're countable, we've, they give us a feeling of certainty. And humans love certainty oh, and yes. hate and abhor uncertainty. But the, the cruel, grand, universal irony is that the most valuable things, or at least the things that look like progress, are inherently uncertain. And mm -hmm. most of how nature works is through failure is through scaled failure, right? If you think about evolution, right? You have a lot of different mutations, 99.9% .9 of them just don't work, but 1% of them give you a trunk long enough to reach the top of a tree, right? <laughs> and that's the one that makes it. And even in the world, if you think about most major, like big giant companies, um, they waste by design millions or billions of dollars on projects that just don't work because they have that one project that does work with a huge success rate to make yeah, up that, for that's the, the billions. entire idea of research and development. Yes. You know, like investing in research and development is not a project pipeline for something you can guarantee will be marketable. It's research and development to determine whether or not something has promise. And to a certain extent, that entire paradigm is about trying discovering, failing, learning from it, moving on to something else. Yeah. And if you think about some of the greatest advances, so if you think about something like DARPA, which helps gives us things like the internet and cell phones, the amount of money thrown at it is literally a figure we don't know because they operate out of a black budget, but that's how much, but I can guarantee it's not $59.99, right? I, I can tell you uh, a lot of content strategy budgets, it would benefit, would, projects would benefit from a black budget. Right. And I, I think that that's an attitude, though. Like, we decide what we're willing to have, un, where we have comfort with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And the military, weirdly, is one of them. We're willing to throw billions, no, trillions of dollars at it with zero, like, I won't say zero accountability, but no one, no one in the public sphere is really paying attention the way they pay attention to, like, let's say, teachers' budgets. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, it's a bounded accountability. Like yes, exactly, a, like a exactly. Very large, you know, aggregate scale will complain about it. But, like, nobody's saying, I don't know, I think uh, I think lieutenants should make 5% less a year. You know? Right, 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 right. So, like, when people show up and they say, okay, we want you, we want, we want to spend 
like trillions of your taxpayer dollars in the military, they're like, okay, I guess so, sure. If they come back and say, hey, why don't you spend trillions of your dollars in education? Like, whoa, buddy, let's talk about this. What, how exactly do you intend to spend those trillion? How did the last, all of a sudden they become accountants, right? <laughs> yep. but, it's, but it's a social, social construction around where we are comfortable with risk. And I think that influences things like how we think about metrics. And when we kind of don't, because we don't really care as long as we feel safe. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it's funny that you mentioned, like, how do I estimate this project as like one of those things that drives into that. And like, I, over time, I've tried to move more towards like the more uncertainty there is, estimates are a trade-off between levels of clarity. Mm. Not, you know, it, it's not like how much time will it take to be, to have a 100% accurate picture of this. It's like, well, that's hard to say because we don't have any picture right now. And 100% accuracy takes a heck of a lot of time. But I'm, you know, we're fairly confident that like with eight weeks, we can get you a good map of this and, you know, uh, to this particular degree of certainty yeah. about what, you know, where, what lives where. So time has flown. <laughs> yes. um, I want to make sure we get to some of these questions in the chat real quick, though. I want to also make sure that you get a chance to tell me about your new company, which when I first heard about it, like speaking of like celebrities in certain spheres, like I was like, this is like the Avengers. <laughs> I, you know, I, I talked about, you know, fanboying about, you know, people and it's kind of wild. So I, you know, um, Karen McGrain, Ethan Marcotte, and I have formed a company called Autogram. And uh, it's a little weird forming a company with people you're huge fans of. Mm. So it, it, it's, it's been a pleasure. I, I, I get to fanboy about my coworkers. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and what do y'all do? Um, so we, we do um, <laughs> digital strategy, design system, content management, you know, content strategy consulting for usually for large organizations. Um, a lot of what our focus on is on is in the intersection of like, structured content management and design systems. It's a particular intersection that we have found a lot of large organizations and even like mid and small, you know, org orgs are facing a lot of difficulty with because the design system team, you know, teams that are starting to ramp, wrap up like, sorry, ramp up a design system or pattern oriented design practice have their own like core best practices and they're starting to develop processes and workflows to do what they do. And then if you've got a team that's building like a structured content model for either decoupled delivery or for eventual implementation in a content management system, they've got their own pool of best practices that they're trying to pursue and build. And oftentimes those design systems and the structured content tools and how they dovetail in like high variance publishing scenarios where everything's not in a template or something like that they just don't mesh and mm. you get teams with different languages, different processes, different workflows, trying to like stitch together systems that just aren't using the same fundamental mental models about what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, a lot of our focus right now is on working with teams that are trying to like bridge that gap. And it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Where, where can people find out more about your uh, company? Uh, so the website is uh, autogram.is. Um, autogram is... Um, it, it's allowed us to make a host of novelty URLs. Um, 
because anything that you, that's a verb, you can put as a subdirectory under that domain name. And it sounds pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. That reminds me of the Pet Shop Boys. Their first couple albums were designed so that when someone came in and asked uh, for the album, it would, it would flow really well. So like their first album is called Please. So someone can come into a store and say, I'd like uh, the new Pet Shop, Boy al- Pet Shop Boys album, please. <laughs> And then the second album was called Actually, and it was like, I'd like the new Pet Shop Boys album, Actually. By the way, I've got to ask you later about your Twitter handle, Actually. <laughs> so, yeah, I, my, my, my name on Twitter, so my handle on Twitter is Eaton, but the name that shows up is Actually, comma. So everything I say on Twitter is preceded with <laughs> Actually. Um, <laughs> and I it, it, it started as a joke, but now it's sort of like, a nice heuristic for me to step back and say, how much of a jerk am I going to sound like? <laughs> I tweet this out and it's proceeded with actually. So it's, it's sort of just a constant feedback mechanism of uh, trying to, yeah, trying to a, help stop myself. There was a point at which during my, uh, my son's 11 now, there was a similar, I think around eight or nine, his favorite word was actually. <laughs> he, was in the, he was in that super pedantic phase. I, he's still kind of in it. Um, so Larry, you had a question you wanted to ask uh, on video about morals and values. Yeah, I've, I'm curious if either of you have read Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, um, because it kind of basically he argues and, and it's sort of like the it's sort of a summary of the work of moral psychology the, the last 25 years. But basically they and they've done really interesting research that shows pretty clearly that human beings, this won't be a surprise to you, Dave, are completely hardwired for moral judgment mm. and that every act we do, you know, after the fact about, you know, moral frameworks or values and evidence-based stuff, it's all just post hoc rationalization of moral judgments that we made in the moment. And I kind of want to follow on because something you were talking to after about that is like, and especially from you, Jeff, about the more, the personal work then around the integrity between your values and your behavior, you know, that gets interesting in light of that. Like you have to be like kind of some kind of super being to rise above the hardwiring for moral judgment to anyhow, I'll let you guys take it. That's a good one. I mean, do, do, do you have any thoughts, Dave? I, I feel like the danger is always, I could just ramble about some of this stuff. Oh, I think, I think the point is for you to ramble, but I mean, as far as like the hardware thing, I think the thing we have to remember about any hardwired behavior is that it's a lot like the default screen you get when you change uh, internet suppliers, right? So if you get Comcast, Comcast is going to make your default browser screen, Comcast.com. And yeah, you could leave it. <laughs> Most people do. But with just a little bit of effort, you can say, oh, maybe I want Google. Or maybe when you buy a Mac, it's like Safari is your default browser. And you're like, that's adorable. I'm going to switch to Chrome or Firefox, right? So the, the hardwired just is basically another word for default. It's like all things being equal, you're going to do this. And the thing I was saying before about like women in the workplace, like I took the implicit association test, which is a very depressing thing that everyone should do. Um, and I found out that I associate, right, given zero time to react or think about it, I associate women with home more than I do the office. And I am deeply ashamed of this, but that is my hardwired, like, if you just give me like a millisecond to press a button, that's what's going to happen, right? So I have to take that little extra step to go into preferences and say, no, actually, women belong wherever they want, right, <laughs> when I'm making decisions, right? Um, so I think that's sort of like, if that gives us hope, maybe, <laughs> but that, that, that is at least the caveat around the hardwired part of that that I'd consider. Yeah, I mean, I, I, 
pretty much the same perspective, which I think probably isn't shocking. Um, <laughs> how much of a determinist you are, I think, you know, probably feeds into, you know, your, your thoughts on that. But I don't think we are our biology and mm-hmm. I don't think we are our psychology. Um, we're shaped by those natural tendencies. We're shaped by the sort of baseline assumptions that are part of like the, the human society that we're in. Um, but we're not slaves to them. You know, like the basic, you know, biological functions like eating when we're hungry, you know, hitting things if we feel threatened by them and stuff like that are maybe natural responses, but we don't have to view those as what will happen or what must happen or what ought to happen. You know, we are, as a species, what we bring to the table is the ability to conceptualize what we want to be and work towards it, regardless of whether or not it is a natural tendency. You know, it's like the natural state of humans is not to have houses. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> or um, clothes, for that matter. <laughs> or Xboxes, for that matter. You know, it like, um, and I think, the, uh, but a corollary danger to that is that a lot of those kinds of judgments that we make are also social constructs as well like Uh you know dave you mentioned you know the that implicit association of you know women being associated with the home rather than professional scenarios as something you're troubled by because you're like your intellectual framework for understanding humans doesn't reflect doesn't have that baked into it but your internal reaction does and you know it's like all of us have those kinds of things but also like that's not biological there's nothing right. about like homo sapien that you know associates a particular gender with a particular type of building that's something that has also emerged over time mm-hmm. and the time scale that each individual engages with civilization on is very very limited compared to the time scale at which these trends have emerged and when we're measuring the way we think about things, I, I, I try to approach it with a degree of humility about, mm. you know, well, this may not be humanness. This may be, you know, North Americanness or yeah. <laughs> post-industrialness, you know, it, like those kinds of things, I think, they're, it's useful to understand those tendencies. It's useful to recognize them but also, you know, distinguishing them from what is inherent. And uh, I don't know, it's a lot of rambling. But, uh, well, no, and I, and I think, and, and uh, we, got, we got time for one more question I'm going to jump to, but right, right before that, just speaking of what is actually humanness, I was watching this video about um, body language and uh, body language reactions that are actually truly universal. And one of them is this, like when you're shocked or when you're like morally offended. And for those of you on the podcast, I'm basically putting my hand to my throat in a sort of clutching of pearls kind of way. And they found that that is like across the entire planet. And what you'll notice is this part of the neck around the trachea, that's what lions go for when they try to suffocate you and kill you. (laughs) So it is this learned response around protect you. It's protect your neck (laughs) is what it is. 
because oh. universally, wherever you go in the world, if a predator is trying to kill you, it's going to go for the neck. Protect your neck. Suffocate. Yeah. Quick, quick gesture. So uh, uh, vampires. Yes. Certain stakeholders. Yes. <laughs> so once again, Wu-Tang has showed us the way. Um, final question. Um, uh, this is a text I'm going to read. It seems like measuring success is a recurring challenge. Do you have any resources to learn more about how to measure success effectively? Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. About, that's a tricky one. Um, for certain, um, for certain like user testing and evaluation stuff, um, Erica Hall's book, Just Enough Research mm. has been really useful. Um, it's not necessarily about like project metrics and stuff like that, but I found it really helped me step back from the sense that I had to do some massive research project in order to get useful insights. She treats it as more of like, a process where you do just enough to learn something, you test that and you, you know, you work with it. And it's, it's been really valuable. Um, I think Jared Spool um, has also done a lot of great talks on, um, on like very tactical level approaches to improving web and project metrics in particular, things like teasing, you know, teasing away bounce rate from, you know, cart completion if you're working on a you know a, on an e-commerce project and stuff like that and from a purely tactical standpoint his stuff has been you know, his stuff has been really useful um i'll have to think about that in terms of other you know other resources but those are the two that spring to mind immediately yeah i can tell you what's been helpful for me uh not in terms of metrics because i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> uh, my guess is, yeah, but um, but in terms of like trying to pull together those resources, one thing that's, I don't even know where, how this started, but I've, I've created this uh, Google Doc of like uh, inclusive design slash cognitive bias resources mm. that I just keep adding to over time whenever I see something new. Um, so I don't know if that, that like, I, I look forward to a Jeff Eaton useful metrics resource sheet <laughs> that we can all <laughs> Google in the future. Um, Thank you all for coming. Uh, we're at time now. Jeff, thanks so much for, for being on. Thank you, David. I, I got to say, your your book is fantastic. And if anybody who's listening finds any of this stuff interesting, you got to check out Design for Cognitive Bias. It's a fantastic resource. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, when Jeff finally finishes his content modeling book, I will <laughs> urge you all to buy it. Uh, sight unseen. That is how much faith I have in him. Uh, thank you all so much for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and we will see you next time.